Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandspring. Good evening, everybody. And after a couple of weeks of local focus, I think there is a, my, my post-traumatic quasi-quateng disorder has, has eased back a little bit. So we're prepared to venture this evening into matters of national importance. And it's the Sunday and, and the Jeremy Hunt hasn't been thrown under a bus yet. So um, th- things are looking up for me, Simon, are they not? Yeah, this week's Chancellor seems to be, um, well, seems to still be in post. So, you know, let's see. It's it's early days. It's, we've got a few days left of the month yet. Absolutely. So focus this evening is on the autumn statement. And uh, and as with these things, it's always good to bring on a couple of learned guests. And we've uh, we've got a fresh face on the podcast. So uh, welcome to Mark Coates. Um, we'll give Mark a chance to introduce himself a bit later. But it, it would be fair to say Mark, uh, a, a Labour activist and uh, potential councillor next May in the um, slightly blue stronghold of Hailing Island. Yeah, I'd like to be the first. That would be uh, one for my bucket list. Absolutely. And I wouldn't like to say an old familiar face, but a familiar face nonetheless. Uh, welcome, Steve Pitt. And with that, he's just dropped off the stream. What have you said? Excellent. Um, oh, well, so he... it, we'll, we'll let Steve battle away with the... He'll be, with the he'll be back. But, um, as Well, indeed, as is ever his... Um, his modus of operandi, he'll be back. Um, so let's set the scene a little bit. So on Thursday, just in case anybody missed it, there was another Chancellor's autumn statement. Um, Slight, slightly different in this in this kind of, this time round, wasn't it? Because rather than just throwing money in all directions and saying, oh yeah, well, I'll let you know I'm going to pay for it in a month or so's time. It was, it was, it was a full and detailed proposal rather than just half of one to send the markets into a massive spooked frenzy. Um, yeah, indeed. So I'm going to cover off uh, some of the points um, just to kind of set the scene a bit and then we'll, we'll let our guests um, introduce themselves a little bit more fully. So thank you both for joining us. Um, I'm going to channel, I'm not going to do an impression of, of Jeremy Hunt, um, but here we, here we are anyway, nonetheless. So um, the Chancellor's statement on Thursday um, was talking about the government's priorities are stability, growth and public services um, with economic um, economic stability and uh, sorry, economic stability relies on fiscal sustainability. And the autumn statement sets out the government's plan to ensure the national debt falls as a proportion of the economy over the medium term. This will reduce debt servicing costs and leave more money to invest in public services, support the Bank of England's action to control inflation and give businesses the stability and confidence they need to invest and grow in the UK. I mean, there in that paragraph from the statement, that's basically the whole kind of thing. I've saved him about four hours. Yeah, no, you've you've, you've done it, but but these are your editing skills, Simon. You managed to turn this into a viable podcast every week, so I expect you to be able to wield the surgeon's knife with accuracy and precision. I've literally picked the most appropriate paragraph in the first page of his statement, so um, and not edited it more than that. So um, anyway, if he wants to wants to. take advantage of our editing services we're, we're happy to offer them so um what things have been on offer um then from uh, from the chancellor so just as another headline so the forecasts that came out of the obr were that four point the growth for this year would be four to four point two percent and next year would be one point eight percent and the imf predicts that a third of the world's economies will be in recession this year or next and that borrowing uh, this year will be seven point one percent of gdp uh, which is about £7 billion. Pounds. Uh, the Chancellor also refers to his new fiscal rules. Um, I remember back in the day of Gordon Brown and his fiscal rules. Um, underlying debt must fall as a, as a percentage of GDP in five years, um, which he's, ex- he's given himself a bit more headroom there because he's extended it from three years. And public sector borrowing must fall below 3% of GDP. Um, so summary of the, of the items. So these were the... These are things, so 20 billion increase on research and development, 14 billion cut in, in, in business rates, 6 billion pounds more for the home investment from 2025, 3.3 billion more for the NHS, 
2.3 billion more for education, 1 billion more for social care, and a further 1.7 billion in the next fiscal year. No cuts to capital budgets for two years. Social housing rent increases will be capped at 7%. That's helpful if you're in a social housing, but obviously not if you've got a private landlord. 1 billion extension of the household support fund. The energy price guarantee is increased to £3,000, so that's based on the typical usage of the household um, and is extended for 12 months because it was going to be 18 months, then it was 6 months, and then it's now it's 18 months again. Benefits up 10.1%, um, and some one-off payments, £900 for households um, on means-tested benefits, uh, £300 for a pensioner households, £150 for those in receipt of disability benefits, and the pension triple lock is retained, um, as I'm sure um, many pensioners will be happy to hear. So here's some of the some of the downsides. Um, defence spending is going to be kept at the two percent of GDP, uh, uh, so basically reducing or removing the planned increase to three percent. The forty-five percent levy on producers of electricity. A windfall on oil and gas profits is increased f uh, increased to thirty-five percent from twenty-five percent and extended to March 2023. Local governments will be allowed to increase council tax by up to 5%, which is up from 3%. I'm sure that will come up later on. Uh, the dividend and capital gains, gains tax allowance is reduced. The top rate of income tax, which is the 40% uh, bracket, um, will now be applicable from 1,000, sorry, 125,140 pounds um, instead of 150,000 pounds. Um, the personal tax allowance, except for the 45% rate, is frozen. And the inheritance tax is frozen until April 28. A vehicle excise duty applies to electric vehicles from April 2025. There we go. How was that? You've done well there. You cut the four hour. Um, so that's the background. That's the synopsis. Uh, a bit of giveth and a bit of taketh away, as there is with every budget. So we'll now dive into some analysis but first to, to meet our guests if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit of your background and where your politics are at and if I can start first with Mark. Well thanks very much for inviting me everyone um, I've been begging Ian for a little while uh, I'm just a local teacher on Halen but um, I suppose I started getting involved in 2016 moved back to Halen Island and got involved in the ferry and worked a lot Steve with Matt Winnington uh, on that but um, yeah I led that uh, that campaign and I managed to get Richard Branson interested he only gave us a few thousand pounds but it was enough wasn't it and we, we used that to, uh, to to really generate the interest and of course it's all down to Baker Trait now who run the ferry uh, the, the, the success of that but that, that made me feel pretty good and since then I've, I haven't stopped and um, the charity that I started the Heart of Halen Boxing Club won a Queen's Award earlier this year so that was a that was a nice, um, nice outcome as well. And then I stood for Labour, and we moved up. This is it's small stuff. I'm right at the beginning, not as far as as, as Steve's got or any other guests that you have. But uh, we, I managed to move from uh, 300 to a coveted 800 votes, uh, and and push the Conservatives a little for the first time on hailing. Uh, and and um, well, the money's on me to to maybe become the first ever Labour councillor next year. So we'll see what happens in May. But uh, thanks for inviting me on to a big boy show. <laughs> no worry, Mark. You're you're very welcome, and uh, I think it is the, the 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 story of the community activism that then accidentally moves you towards uh, towards standing for uh, for office, and um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, that's a pretty steep hill to climb, and because there is a there's always been a sort of paradox that in uh, in Haven and Hailing Island that um, if we put a blue blue rosette on a tin of beans, they'd have a pretty fair chance of winning it. So, uh, so uh, yeah, good luck in your endeavours next May. Thanks. And Steve, I'm sure most folk will know of you, but if you can give us the synopsis for any new, we might have brought in a whole new audience from Hailing. Can't hear you, Steve. Ah, this is the same problem we had in the off-air just before. Yeah, the, te the technical issues seem to be some, I don't know whether it's some sort of Windows update that's playing hell havoc. Mm -hmm. Shall we crack on with the conversations with Mark and do you want to then... Um... Yeah, let me sort Steve out and then you crack on. Marvellous. So it'll just be the, it'll just be the Tiny and Mark show for the minute and we'll, um, we'll, um, we'll kick these about. 
So one of the things we asked for in advance of the show, Mark, was um, was your kind of hopes and fears for the fiscal statement, and you were good enough to to, to give us some thoughts. Um, a couple of the things you called out were were that you hoped that the the top rate of tax, which famously um, in the quasi quoting ill fated or oh, let's drop that from 45 to 40 percent your hope was that that threshold was reduced and that they had did something about capital gains and dividend tax so it, it looks like though you you've got those two things on your wish list i don't know whether you had an inside line to jeremy but um what were your overall thoughts and and were you pleased to get some of those uh those headline items included well they they do drop hints that seems to be normal these days doesn't it um I don't know why that is. That it's, it always used to be that you, you told us what was going to happen in the press room or in Parliament, but now they leak everything beforehand. It's the modus operandi, which uh, um, Simon was referring to earlier. Um, so I did get a hint, but I, I, yes and no. Yes and no for me. Um, it's better than the last budget, um, for sure. Well, um, let's be fair. As, as At the time, I was a card-carrying Conservative member and I wasn't wildly keen on the last budget, which is an understatement. So it, it was a pretty low bar to clear, wasn't it, to be better than the last one, which seemed it, to delight it, nobody. Um, well, I, I have mixed, I've mixed feelings about this one. I understand what they were trying to do and it was trying to get trust back. And I think, um, is it Andrew Stacey, the, the uh, head of the Bank of England said that you know our, our reputation was damaged. They were trying to settle the markets. I understand uh, what they were trying to do, but as far, as far as that that threshold goes, yes to lowering the forty five p threshold, um, but for me, no to freezing the twenty p threshold. I, as I understand it, um, which is an area that might be worthy of discussion, um, people on lower incomes are likely to spend more. And I think that it's a good way to stimulate the economy, apart from anything else, um, the obvious moral reasons, um, not to not to tax it. Uh, what are we now? Twelve thousand, I think it is, isn't it? Mm, it's about that. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. twelve and a half. I think. 12, yeah, twelve, twelve, five, seventy. Um, and and I think that uh, I think that's a shame that he's frozen that. I think he could have moved that moved that up. But the other half I like. And then as far as the capital gains tax goes i know he's dropping the threshold there um incrementally but um i i do agree and i am stealing shamelessly stealing what um tax justice uk uh, have suggested um i quite like the idea of just having a simplified tax system where all income is taxed the same way uh, and and as i understand it that could give us 14 billion uh, just by just by treating everyone the same, treating all those those streams of, of income in the same way. So that's what I'd like to have seen. But yeah, a movement in the right direction. Yeah, and I guess when we look at the capital gains tax at, at the moment, the the, the threshold is twelve thousand pounds. So, you know, you can you, you can make a profit from a, a sale and 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 realise that, um, and that that's dropping pretty sharply though, isn't it? It's it's I think it's halving to six thousand next April, and then halving again the following April to 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 three thousand pounds. So, it's one of those things where, uh, for for me, just looking at it. It, that, that for me almost seems, you know, a bit more tokenistic and I guess on that agenda of, of sort of personal wealth, I guess there's an element of, you know, if somebody is pulling a dividend either from shares that they own or, um, you know, the, the, the drop of £9,000 over two years, um, it, yes, it will, it will make a difference in terms of the ability to move the income in, but it probably isn't going it, to, it seems to be to me more signalling than it does raising significant revenue. Yeah, I, I, I think tokenistic is a good uh, good description. Um, whereas the people who are paying the, um, the, the 45p are going to be paying about £100 a month more in tax, as I understand it, um, that, that small... Um, <laughs> Yeah, if you're on a hundred and yeah, if you're on a hundred and fifty k, it will it will uh it, you know again it, it like you say it will make a all over it's a a, a bit of a difference um mm. you know and again hundred pounds is a hundred pounds but if your if your take home salary is significant um then you can I, I think yeah you, you yeah 
yeah, I think that's that. The mo most people would not be shedding too many tears for for anyone who's uh, who's pulling that kind of salary. It, it's interesting that the tax burden actually is higher. Um, you know, many people might not know that once you hit a hundred k, you have to pay back your the personal tax allowance at one pound for or for every two pounds earned. So, actually, between that figure of I think it's one hundred and twenty five three forty, um, you actually pay seventy percent income tax on that over the time, which is something that's seldom talked about. Um, so, from a tax perspective, um, things look pretty good from the the top earner but as you say the freezing of the personal tax allowance is is fundamentally going to hit everybody who earns less than a hundred thousand i think it it also um i think when back when rishi was chancellor uh, this and again i i with while well, the lib dems are trying to sort out their technical issues uh -huh. the the raising of the, the raising of the personal tax threshold was a, a lib dem policy that was brought in during coalition and um, the Conservatives rather sensibly kept it and had raised it every year up until I think it was 2021 when they froze it and now uh, now that seems to be the way forward. I think we might have got somewhere with our technical issue um, and we've now just lost Ian. Now we've, now we've lost Ian so <laughs> yeah, it's like musical chairs in here this evening. Um, yeah, it's it's all right. It's not like we need to put another fifty p in the meter. We can only have three people on at once. Or something. We've not um, we've not scrimped. Oh, um, so I don't know whether you um whether you um what you caught of that, Steve, while we were trying to sort that out. Did um was there anything you were hoping for in the in the statement? Well, I mean, obviously, from my perspective, I ought to introduce myself, actually, because I didn't oh, do that, sorry. did I? So yes, I'm yes, Steve Pitt, I'm a Lib Dem, and I'm the Cabinet Member for Culture, Leisure and Economic Development in Portsmouth. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I looked at it and it, the devil's always in the detail of these things. And there's a hell of a lot of detail missing from that statement. Our uh, financial director sent us through a debrief that night and he's got lots of gaps in it saying to be confirmed, not yet clarified, no detail in statement, etc. So there's a lot of unknowns still going on here. But I mean, the, the, the bit we haven't touched on yet is all that all they're actually doing is shoveling more liability onto local councils to plug financial gaps which is a different way of taxing people uh, and it's you know once you start freezing personal allowances and you start increasing the amount you you offer and makes them laugh the offer to local councils to raise council tax in order to plug the gap that they're not getting from the government um, you're in a pretty invidious mess um, and we you know this these problems have been going on for well pretty much my entire life um, and that is that there's no recognition that in order to have good quality public services you need to fund them properly um, and uh, this country's never taxed fairly um, because if you if it's not about how much somebody pays it's what they get for it that matters um, and actually when you ask people if you're prepared to pay more to get more or retain what you've got, people will generally be supportive of that. So we do a survey every year as a council. Are you prepared to pay an extra one, two percent, whatever it is, in order to on your council tax in order to keep local services? We always get a majority of people come back saying yes. So people don't mind paying for something that they value. What they do object to is the government shoveling their money around um, to cover their own political mistakes. Um, while they're busy playing musical chairs. I mean, the and just, just to say what I mean by that, there's been there's something that people would know as the four great offices of state, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer and Prime Minister. We've had 25 holders of those positions in seven years. Um, it's almost, I think, it might even be unprecedented in uh, modern British politics. Uh, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. And that's why we've got no direction. And this budget's done nothing to improve it. The head of the CBI was saying this week, it's not a plan for growth. Uh, and that's really worrying because another 12 years of flat growth uh, followed uh, after what's looking like a 12 to 18 months of uh, a fairly shallow recession is just what we've been doing for the last 12 years. So if this is the Katori plan to keep doing what we've been doing for the last 12 years, then I utterly reject it. Simple as that. It's an interesting one, though, Steve, isn't it? Because uh, if, if you look at the if you look at the ill-fated quasi-quarteng budget, 
Um, was it a budget? I thought it was a practical joke. Uh, it was a uh, it was a fiscal statement, I believe, was the um, but ultimately that you know if you again and I I can't claim to be a, a good scholar of economics, but ultimately neither can he. Well, indeed, but uh, if you're going to stimulate the supply, you know that was a very brave approach to stimulate the supply side of of the economic equation. And it was universally rejected by the markets and the, you know, and the bond markets crashed and the pound, which was already on a downward slump with the FDA raising rates faster than we were. So there was an element of, I, I think it's an interesting point that, the, you know, ultimately, you know, the IMF are saying that 30% of the world's economies will be in recession. Um, that the, the went for the, the radical option, which went hideously wrong. So I, I guess my question is, you know, the the alternative to the, I guess the only other alternative, um, and I'd welcome your thoughts on it, would be just to borrow like there's no tomorrow and spend. Is is that is that kind of what no, you I, were hoping for? Or, or do, do you I, think there's I, a I third don't think way? That is I don't think that is the only alternative at all, Ian. And I don't think that this was I don't think it was a budget for growth. It was it was clearly trickle down economics yet again, a policy discredited nearly a generation ago. It doesn't work. Um, you know, cutting the top rate of income tax, but um, not doing significant. Uh, and Sorry, my dog's just got back from his walk. He's making a fuss of me, um, but not doing enough to, to help people on uh, middle and low incomes is, is just foolish. I mean, we've been calling as a party for a cut in the headline rate of VAT um, for a 12-month period to stimulate spending in the economy for about a year. Um, and nobody wa nobody wanted to listen to that. But if, if you want people on medium and low incomes to still spend, and they're the people that go out and support the restaurants, they're the people who go to the public houses, they're the people yep. who, you know, they're sp with, who use their disposable income in local economies, what's going to encourage them to do that? All we've done is tighten their their purse strings so much that they can't you know they're choosing between heat or eat um it the whole there's no balance you know all this stuff about balancing and uh, looking after the most vulnerable it, that's not what it's doing at all people don't want to be looked after they want to be empowered um and this wasn't an empowering budget it was more of the same that we've had for ages to calm markets that they upset in the first place this isn't the budget we would have had had it not been for that fiscal statement, we would have had a very different budget. But yet again, we're trying to get back within our financial means, and I absolutely support that. But we're trying to do it at a time when the economy is contracting and we've got, we're going into recession. Growth's been flat for such a long period of time. Wages have disappeared in terms of real value over the last 12 years. People are, we're living in a protracted period of income suppression and it's just not going to work so it might have calmed the markets to some extent although they didn't actually react particularly enthusiastically to it um but it, it's not doing anything to sort out the country's economy you've got to put money back into local people's pockets where they control what they spend it on or all you're going to do is end up with well high streets might be dying now they're going to be dead as a door now within the next 18 months well that seems to be to me the sort of bottom-up approach which, I, which i'd agree with but i'd suggest that uh hunt's trying to stimulate the economy through the city now um since brexit i think they've lost about 1.3 trillion but only about seven thousand jobs now that's a lot less than the hit they thought they were going to take um but he's um I've, I've got a couple of things here so excuse me for reading but um He's taken that the, the, the tax surcharge has been slashed on bank profits. That's one point four billion he's lost there. Um, he seems to be ripping up red tape and unleashing the dogs of private finance, thinking they're going to do it all for us rather than rather than looking to ordinary people on low incomes who actually, if you hadn't frozen the 20 P tax, would have been able to spend more in the places you just mentioned. Um, I I must admit I was gutted when I heard it was going to be the economy. I, I like talking about how much we can spend without any economic responsibility whatsoever. But um, uh, but but realistically, I, I'm I'm asking a genuine question: Is that going to be effective at all? Because for me, all I saw was ripping up regulations by Lawson in the 80s led to 2008 and the financial crash. Uh, is is there any uh, credence to what he's he's kind of doing there? What do you think, Steve? 
No, <laughs> I don't think there is. Um, I, I just I don't see that anything that's happening is credible or that anybody is saying it's like it's likely to work and be successful. I mean, the, the market reaction, this is the extraordinary thing. The pound crashed after the financial statement. The pound went down after this. So, you know, nobody greeted it with massive enthusiasm. If we're now supposed to celebrate the fact that the market only downturns by a small amount on the announcement of a conservative chance of the exchequer, we've come to a very strange world, in my view. Um, you know, and a, and a conservative party that's clearly at war with itself. I mean, the the right wing press are saying that now the Tory party's become the Labour Party. The European Reform Group are still screaming blue murder about just about everything. Um, but, you know, I, I, this is something I often return to in these debates. All the time we've got the first past the post as our electoral system in this country. We are doomed to keep going around in this circle over and over and over again because company, uh, political parties are held hostage by their minorities. Well, there do uh, seem the, to be cycles, for sure. That, I, I see Hunt copying Lawson in the 80s. Yeah. I've seen Quarteng copying Thatcher. But then the, the rate of tax was like 83%, and she brought it down to 60 not from, you know, 45 to 40. I, mean, I, I just see copying, actually, going on, yeah. and, and cycles, as you say. And, uh, you know, what I was saying just now about... Um, lowering tax and you know as a the, the 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 idea that lowering tax should be a principle i don't think it has to be a principle good quality public services a health service that functions properly well, that's a principle it, lowering money isn't principle that's just a that's just an ideological so, belief it's not a principle so let, let me throw a curveball in there then gentlemen which is that you know again it's it's no secret steve that it's it's been national lib dem policy to put uh, an additional penny on income tax as a hypothecated tax for the nhs if yep. we go back um you know it was a boris thing that the, the 1.25 percent on national insurance which meant that the contribution came from both the individual and business that was hypothecated and ring fenced for the nhs and adult social care you know, for me, that 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 you touched on it in your statement there about, you know, people said they were happy to chip in a bit more. And all the major opposition parties went absolutely apoplectic to the point of how can you ask people to pay more when there's a cost of living crisis, choosing heating over eating. And in a, you know, in a famous piece of Borisism, suddenly not only was that hypothecated tax reversed or delayed, but the national insurance threshold shot up so that everybody earning median wage or below no, no longer has to pay any national insurance. So is it really a case that, that people are happy to pay or are they happy to pay theoretically until they're actually asked to dip their hand in their pocket? Nobody likes paying tax, but I'll go back to what I said just now. You have to give them something to believe in and something they want to pay for. So if you're just saying we're going to charge you more, and let's face it, who believes either the Labour Party or the Conservative Bank Party or who would believe my party if they actually say they're going to fix the NHS? Because every political party said that in every manifesto yep. for my entire life. So nobody believes it anymore. So therefore, when they're asked to pay more for it, they don't believe they're going to get value for money. There was actually proposals brought forward by Norman Lamb uh, during the coalition years, which he tried to stick with afterwards and gotten uh, bugger all interest, frankly, from anybody else. And that is in finally doing a proper review of health and social care in this country so they are not two detached systems from each other. The reason we've got a health crisis with ambulances queuing up is they can't get the people into the beds quick enough. And the reason there's people in the beds who don't need to be in the beds is they can't get discharged out into social care because the government doesn't fund it properly locally. Mm. And they, they they see the two things as separate. You know, they haven't. If you're going to do fix things, you've got to fix them properly. And nobody's got the guts to do it. That's the reality. You know, they'll fluff, they'll fluff around the edges of it and they'll pretend they're doing something. But you go to the public and say, oh, we're going to charge you a bit more on your national insurance for this. And and actually, and the point is, national insurance is supposed to be for that in the first place. It yeah, should no, I... be ring-fenced for that. It should be for that. It's become just part of income tax. Yeah, no, and I think that I think that's a fair statement is that, you know, again, but I think it's that piece, isn't it, where 
Um, you know, if you look at the money that's generated through national insurance versus the spending that it's supposed to cover, I think we could probably do, and uh, maybe that's a future show for us to look at the whole, the, 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 the whole NHS spending. So uh, I'm just going to quickly throw to Simon for question four. Um, well, yeah, I don't know whether we've kind of covered it in 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 what you'd said, um, Steve. But before um, before the announcement, you'd shared concerns about the impact on local government budgets, and you, you've spoken a bit to it. Um, have those fears been realised or or not? Or and what are well, they, what would that look like for the city? Well, it's not what it looks like for the city. It's what it looks like for every local authority in the country. I mean, can mm. you believe that two conservative county council leaders one from kent one from hampshire wrote to the prime minister urging them to have a serious rethink about how they're going to fund local government post post 2025 26 uh, i mean roy humby has spent most of the last week probably because he got a jackboot up his backside rowing back from that and saying oh i didn't mean that at all well he did because he was quoted in the paper as saying it um, and he hasn't said that they misquote. They said uh, he was misrepresented. Well, I, I, funny that two council leaders are misrepresented. I haven't heard the one from Kent saying that he was misrepresented when they both signed the same letter. So it's a bit odd. But clearly, we are in a situation where council funding is in crisis. And, and the government does this deliberately because they know that the general public, unfortunately, do not understand what councils do. You know, if you look at what they people complain about, they complain about missed bin collections, they complain about potholes, they complain about dog poo, they complain about you know leisure centres not opening properly, all these, all the sort, those sorts of things, which are a tiny, tiny fraction of where most of the money goes. Mm. Now, the vast chunk of our controllable spend goes on social care. We had we have children in placements who pre-COVID we would have been paying about £3 a week for. Now we're paying £30,000 a week for those placements. And yet, what's the government prepared to do about it? Absolutely nothing. They're not interested in the problems that councils have. They never have been, never will be, because they see us as the cannon fodder that they can shove out the front to get the stick back from the public. And they can now, you know, it, it was trailed in advance. Uh, in fact, that budget was the most leaked document in political history, I think. Nobody knew, uh, none of it came as a surprise because everybody knew what was in it. But, they, you know, trailing that you're going to allow councils to raise the amount of council tax they can raise in order to deal with their financial problems. They're not our financial problems. They're financial problems that government is creating by not addressing the crisis in social care. The bills for looking after people are going through the roof and there is no recognition of that at all other than, oh, you can charge more people council on, the, on your council tax if you want to. That's not strategic thinking and it's certainly not going to help the NHS, which is now riddled with endless procedural uh, problems and, and far too many middle management people put health back in the hands of healthcare professionals and get rid of the managers that will save you the money on the nhs you need to drive back to frontline healthcare the, the country's in an absolute mess i'm 53 years old now and I, I grew up under margaret thatcher and whilst i didn't like her and didn't agree with anything she did i did at least believe that she was doing what she wanted to do and she knew why she was doing it I don't believe that of this government at all. I don't think they've got a clue what they're doing. I think all they're trying to do is keep the ship afloat long enough to say enough Hail Marys to think that maybe things will get better before the next election. That gives me no confidence whatsoever that we're not all head heading to hell in a handcart at a very, very fast pace. I've never been this scared about the future of local government or the future of this country. And so I guess, Steve, just to, just to, to, to look at some of the numbers there, because, and I get the concern, you know, we live in, in very, you know, very challenging times. I, I guess when, you know, when I read through the, a couple of the Commons briefings, there was very little specific there about, you know, local council funding, other than that departmental budgets were going to be frozen, with the exception of health. But I guess, you know, if I, if I was looking at this objectively, you know, if historically you could raise council tax by 3% and you've now got the ability to raise it by 5%, then surely, you know, that's got to help bring more money into the coffers of, of PCC and in, in Mark's case, you know, hailing. Surely but, but, that's that's got to help. No, 
No. Well, it, well it, of course it will help in as much as it, it makes it slightly better than it was before it happened. But we were expecting this year to be looking at around about 2% pay settlement, and it's over 6%. That's millions of pounds. You know, if you raise council tax by a, a 1% in Portsmouth, it raises about a million pounds. If right. you raise it by 2%, two, so, you know, that's what you're looking at. The cost of energy to the council and the and the finance settlement on our staff massively exceeds even what 5% would bring. And the cost of social care has gone up by more than the 2% that the, that the uh, raising council tax with that preset would raise. So they have not done nothing to close the gap. That gap still exists and councils are still hemorrhaging money, which is why those county council leaders and councils all over the country are saying you can pass the buck to us in the knowledge that we'll probably have to do that. We'll probably have to put up council tax by those amounts just to stop yep. ourselves from getting becoming financially unstable, knowing that we will then take the kicking on your behalf at the ballot box next year and you'll have done nothing to solve the problem. That's not responsible government, Ian, on any level. They have to take a responsibility to say, this is what's happening. We need to address this and we need to sort it out, not kick it down the road to local authorities. And isn't it notable that it's the conservative local authorities that are screaming the loudest because the counties have the largest responsibility for social care and the greatest costs. And therefore, they've got the biggest budget deficits. Hampshire's was 80 million before this happened. It's over 100 million now. And that's just one county. And, and yeah, I'd just like to bring bring Mark in on 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 this one now. So so Mark, you've you've heard what Steve said, and again, um, you know, understandable. Uh, you know, wage large wage settlements, and and obviously there's an announcement that the national living wage will go up next year. Um, you know, what what are your fears or or, or hopes for ha for having? I I agree that actually this stuff should be funded and i do think there's room for those with the broader shoulders to uh, to provide as i understand about 37 billion towards that um shortfall by taxing nom-doms and having a capital gains tax that ensures everyone pays the same uh, and actually simplifying the system and probably closing most loopholes um but uh one thing that that uh, that struck me from humby's um response which uh, which obviously was mis misrepresented whatever um is that he said that since the 40s and 60s um there's been no way for councils to to bring about initiatives that can in some way uh fundraise uh, for them they ca they can't generate their own revenue now i looked at what um norfolk have done with norse and i think they they raised and the, the, their profits went up by about 16 million last last year um they've managed to produce they've managed to, to to get the contracts in a lot of local councils mainly conservative ones um they've used local contractors uh, the, the quality of um of, of what's being provided has, has definitely dropped uh, without a shadow of a doubt um but they've generated money through th through norse is there is there anything that i i, I First of all, this is, I'm not saying that um, councils should actually go out and make all their own money. I think they should be properly funded. But is there a way uh, that that they can generate their own revenue, or, or do you think they're not business business people, and actually that would that would fail? Well, I think councils have been generating their own revenue. Um, and the problem was that some of them got a bit crazy. So Spellthorn's a good example. Croydon's another one uh, where they basically went bust, and they they went out and speculated on commercial property portfolios that weren't very well thought out. Now, fair play to the, our Conservative predecessors at the Council in Portsmouth. The pro commercial property portfolio that they put together was on the whole financially sound. The problem with that is that whilst it can generate income through investments, and I'll come on to other ways that you can do that in a second, but this is one that a lot of road that a lot of councils have been down. Unless you actually have a really good uh, set of uh, finance officers and you've got some commercial experience in the council team, you will get yourselves in a bit of a pickle. So Spellthorn went and bought all sorts of stuff that was that subsequently didn't make any money. You had councils around the country buying shopping centres because they wanted to regenerate them. Well, somebody should have told them that retail suffering and now is not a really good time to be doing that. So um, 
and consequently it put them in financial difficulty. So the government changed the rules about the use of the Public Works Loan Board. You couldn't continue to borrow for commercial gain. That puts even councils like Portsmouth in a sticky position because when you've got an investment, let's just, you know, a hypothetical example, you've bought a massive warehouse somewhere in the country and it's turning a good profit. At some point, you've got to refurbish it. You'll, you'll need to relet it. You'll need to invest in the building, look after it. You are not allowed to borrow the money to do that. If you do, you then have to dispose of the asset to recover that money. You're not allowed to replenish the asset you know improve it and keep it so the inevitability is that councils over a period of time will be forced to um relinquish their property portfolios so those that have got them will need to as they need to flip them uh which was always the plan around them they will need to be disposed of that's going to put even more pressure on councils now there are ways you can in, uh, income generate um most notably before um 2019 um, and the pandemic, and then certainly the cost of living crisis and all the uh, well-publicised stuff around energy companies. There were a number of councils around the country that went around setting them up. And thank God we managed to stop the one that was planned in Portsmouth, Victory Energy, uh, which still costs us several million quid just to get rid of it. Um, if that had proceeded, we'd have been facing a £30 million black hole now, which is what happened with Robin Hood Energy elsewhere. Uh, and the uh, the one that they had in Bristol. So companies, uh, councils have tried to be entrepreneurial in the past the, in order to replace the money that they don't get in from government anymore. But unfortunately, government's now changed the rules because of these people doing crazy schemes to make it even harder for those of us who've tried to use the system to, to plug the gaps. Having said that, councils do income generate. My own portfolio, uh, which culture and leisure, roughly 50% of our spend is from money that we generate as income. So, you know, councils all around the country will do the same thing. So the fees and charges that we charge for uh, on a whole range of things from land hires to beach huts, that money goes back into the service in order to provide uh, the service that we do provide as good as it is. So, um, you know, should councils be income generators? Yes, but with, with with proper guidelines around it. And unfortunately, what they've now done by shutting the stable door after the horse is bolted is meant that those people who did it in a fairly responsible way are also now being punished um, and made to dispose of those assets over time. So, you know, the, the, the government initially said, oh, this is great. Councils are going out and investing and they're creating money so we can keep cutting them, can't we? Which is what happened. I think West Sussex was the key one where they were trumpeting themselves as embracing austerity and doing everything the government wanted uh, in the expectation that eventually the government would turn around and say, you've done a cracking job, West Sussex. We're going to look after you. And when the government turned around and patted them on the back and said, you've done a cracking job and now we're going to cut you even further, West Sussex was surprised. Oh, by the way, that was a conservative-led authority. So, you know, this is an absolute mess. Uh, and to, to, to hope that income generations is, is a is the main solution it just isn't I'm, I'm afraid and there's there's no vehicle now to borrow the money to do it either so mm. two um so two departments well the only two departments that that actually saw uh, real terms increases in funders in the, in this statement uh were the nhs and education um was that at least the the, the right decision or or what would be better if i can give that to mark first well, education, I'm very happy to talk about all day, uh, being a teacher. Um, and I've got some thoughts about uh, about this. Um, the 3.3 million, I, th I, f I forget if it was um, Ian or Steve, or Steve who touched on this already, but the, the shortfall in funding, um, given that all of the pay rises aren't going to be fully funded, allegedly, and, um, and that's what I'll be striking about, not the fact it's just 5%, and that's way below the average, but the fact that they're not fully funded. Um, and the uh, the increase in electric bills, I think we're talking about £230,000 uh, deficit as a result of that in, in, in our school. And I think that our, on, my mind's quite a small school. On average, I think it's over 300, 350,000. I think all it's going to do is, is is cover that. It doesn't help colleges. It doesn't help uh, schools with special educational needs. Um, in Hampshire, that will be a real worry because we have a lot of 11 to 16 secondary schools and then everyone goes to college right the way across Hampshire, which is a great system, but the colleges are, are going to be uh, struggling. Maybe they need to income generate as well. Um, and all they're promising is to reach the 2010 levels of funding by 2025. So... 
it's not enough. The way that they've siphoned some money off is a disgrace as well. I just want to talk for a second about uh, the Oak Academy. They've given 43 million. I know it's not a huge sum, uh, but it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's enough to, to wind us all up. 43 million uh, to the Online Oak National Academy. Um, which about a third of teachers say they've used at some point for cover lessons. The, the material on there is completely uninspiring. If the pandemic taught us anything about education and uh, lockdown, we're still in the pandemic, aren't we? But if lockdown taught us anything about education, it's that kids need a 3D immersive experience with teachers that know what they're doing, can personalise learning, which was um, Blair and Brown's mantra, can reach out to the kids, look at what they've done and work with them and keep personalising that experience and inspire them uh, and nurture them. And um, the gaps that are there now, um, behaviourally as well as uh, academically, um, are because we switched to online. Now, I know online is powerful. We can do more there. You wonder if um, that, you know, that they think maybe they, they know something we don't. But for me, it's, it's a tool that can enhance or, or, or back up learning a bit, which teachers are best placed um, to employ. The idea that you can create lots of generic material um, and and then give that to everyone, and they're all in the same thing, and everyone will be brainy. It's just a fallacy. It's just pure nonsense. Funnily enough, Michael Gove, um, who just came up with some good policies as education secretary, but also just just ripped it, it to, to pieces, and and uh, and was immoral in the way that he went about some changes. Um, he's he's sitting on the Oak Academy now, along with some dragons from Dragons Den. So I'm sure it'll be great. But um, it, that's proper wound me up. Um, and uh, as far as the NHS goes, that 14 billion that I said we could get from having a fair tax system, I'd like to see double the care there is for mental health. Just a quick, because I, I was thinking about it earlier, but I was enjoying listening to Steve too much. Uh, a quick one on the NHS and that funding. The, um, uh, they, we spend about 14 billion at the moment on mental health, um, and it's about 11% of the NHS budget. Now, on the NHS, uh, it was on an NHS website. Um, uh, that was the root of the address bar anyway. Uh, they said that there was um, there, there were 23% of patients at the moment, um, their disease, which is the word they used, um, was mental. Um, and yet 11% is the amount we spend on that. And it seems very obvious to me we need to double the budget for mental health. And I know people who've um, who've had to, to deal with the crisis units and... They're, they're doing their absolute best, those people, but they can't reach them in time. We're talking about people who've had to be on suicide watch by, from, from relatives um, while they wait the week required, the week, not just talking about a 12-hour wait, but the week required to get the crisis team in. Um, it's, it's an absolute disgrace. It doesn't match up at all. We're way behind in terms of uh, our funding there, and that's, that's what I'd like to see most um, added to. Um, that 3.3 billion. There's another 14 billion to double that mental health capacity. If I, um, thank you, Mark. And if I can ask the same, the same as Steve. Yeah, I, I basically agree. I agree with what Mark wants to achieve. I think I've just got a slightly different view on the, where the funding needs to go, and that is that. And it's one of the things that, when you asked me to come on here, it was a comment that I've made, and what I'm seeing day to day when I'm out and about around the city. The inevitability of reducing council funding, because that's what's happening, is that non-statutory services go. So the things that we're not legally obliged to deliver will cease mm. to exist. So much of that is around early intervention, particularly in children's and adult social care, but also delivered through portfolios like mine, through culture, through events, well-being, uh, you know, community centres, places where people go to avoid those sen that sense of isolation to be able to be seen by, you know, somebody just working behind the desk in the community centre thinks, oh, we haven't seen Mr. So-and-so this week. I'll just, get, I'll just give him a ring because he's one of our members and make sure he's okay. Those little things, those tiny little things, when you add up the millions of them that happen every day, what that's doing is that's stopping people from getting seriously ill and having poor mental health issues. It's also stopping a large amount of physical health issues from developing because it's making people go out and engage with their communities. People have been shut in for a long time. People are going to live less long because of COVID, because 
I've seen it in members of my own family. People have spent too much time indoors, away from other people. They haven't been able to go out and do the things that they did before. It was lovely that the government said they could walk around their garden for an hour, but that's not what actually keeps people young and keeps them fit. Now, the impact of all of that post-pandemic in a funding environment where you're removing that ability of councils to deliver what they know best how to do, which is great early intervention work to support communities, create communities, build strength in communities. If that happens, then the time bomb in the NHS and in education is just going to tick even more loudly and even more quickly. Because in education alone, as Mark's just said, we, you this that immersive experience in education. It's also the summer reading challenge, the trips to the library, the school trips, which schools just don't do anymore because they just can't afford them. You know, taking kids to the theatre once a year, letting them see what life is like beyond their own very narrow community. I've got kids in Portsmouth, in Paulsgrove, who've never been to the sea. Now, it's insane. And we should be investing on that that front end of all of this to keep people well physically, to keep them mentally fit so they don't suffer from poor mental health and to invest in those kids so that they actually have a properly rounded education where every child in this country has an opportunity to engage regularly. And by that, I mean multiple times per year at the very least in a cultural activity that increases their self-confidence, develops their soft skills and enables them to be better people. Exams on their own aren't anything. They're nothing. They're just pieces of paper. I go around and talk to employers. When we were doing the, the economy and skills strategy for the city, what did every major employer from BAE all the way through to the university tell me that they needed? They wanted students to come to them so that they had a greater ability to learn because their soft skills and their confidence were high. What did BAE tell me? They told me that they wanted people who weren't just academically good but they had the ability to work in a team and had confidence that's what we're not doing in this country that's why we've got a deficit in in economic growth it's not that we're not innovative and we're not able to be creative but we're not doing it in such a way that people feel confident enough to go out and do it instead of that they're applying for a 15 quid an hour job to go and shelf stack in tesco's because we put more value in that than we do in teaching and inspiring people if you going to close a library or you're going to delete events people go oh that's a terrible thing that's awful that but it's they should be screaming about it because losing those things is losing the fabric of what makes this country successful and why it has such a huge cre amount of creative talent and such a wonderful uh cultural uh and heritage uh environment to live in unfunded by government for so long the arts council round that's just happened was a national embarrassment if we start to address those things, then we can build a UK that people feel proud of again. What we've got at the moment is something that's on life support and gets a dose of adrenaline every now and again, just before a general election. Fed up with it. Pretty forthright there, Steve, as we've, we've come to it come to expect uh, again if i can just turn the focus um just as we're, we're closing in on the end of the show looking at um small business obviously there was the freezing of the business rates but uh, and we've touched on the cost of power um you know and, and again the double-edged sword of course will be the 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 national living wage is going up by nine percent so that means for a lot of particularly in retail and leisure and cafe and bars and everything else That'll be a 10% jump in costs for the, the staff. Um, I guess the question is, is, is there anything more that the government could have, should have done for local businesses? And, and did they miss a trick by um, not moving forward with an online sales tax, which seems to advantage the likes of Amazon, who are very skilled in the art of not paying their taxes? I'll throw that one to Mark first. Yeah, I mentioned that one to you. I think they've managed to pay no tax at all this year. Amazon, they managed to offset thanks to a Rishi loop, a loophole. Um, £800,000 uh, in tax last year, I think, against capital allowance. Um, they're really good at that. Um, and, um, and, and I can tell you that Jane, who runs Pebble Beach Cafe down the road, doesn't know how to get get those loopholes and um and 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 i, I might shift this slightly um yeah. if you don't mind and and move it to we, we've got online there's a bit of an online versus uh retail um uh tension here 
and and I'd just like to get underneath that a little bit if that's if that's um, allowed. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to avoid the question at all, but to answer it briefly, the, I think the freezing the um, the business rates was the plea from business groups last week. Could they have done more? Yes, but it's difficult when you're bargaining for for more for businesses. Um, it's harder than when you're bargaining for for education and for and for health. I think it's a tough gig. Um, but but we do need we do need to protect them. And I think they could have dropped the business rates and funded it with an online tax. Now, um, in February, there was an online tax uh, sales tax uh, consultation, and I never saw the outcome of that. I don't know if they've buried it. I don't know what it was, but they said they were going to get back to us in June. And I've not seen it publicized uh, anywhere. I don't know if it's been published at all. Um, but for me, it seems obvious there should be an online sales tax and, and that should be used to to bring down uh, the, the business tax on on, on high street um, uh, commercial uh, ventures. And I, and I just wonder, I'm, it's another genuine question. I don't know if we should be fighting really hard to save shops um, or we should be uh, looking at where, um, at looking at the footfall fading away and looking at where that's going and perhaps um, preparing to, to, to repurpose it all. And, and this is an area Steve will be an expert in, in leisure zones and, uh, and, and, and new properties. Um, and, and, and just admitting that they're on their way out and everyone's going to be online. I, I don't know which way to go. I don't know which way to go. Uh, but I personally find the high street a, a reassuring place to be. I like going to, to, you know, for coffee and then walking around malls. That seems more popular in other countries than it is here. We don't seem to invest in in, in those. Uh, and uh, and I'm not sure what to do. Do we do we grasp the nettle and uh, and just say, look, it's the end of retail? Don't know. So, Steve, you you touched on it in 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 one of your earlier answers about the the concern for the death of high streets. Um, I know that uh, I know that PCC has has got some additional funding to try and look at regeneration. Um, what are your thoughts? I don't think high streets are dying. I think they're evolving. I, I, I always answer this question the same way because I genuinely believe it. I think what we need though is the opportunity for independence to grow. Hmm. So earlier today, I was at the We Create Market at the former Sainsbury's that the council bought a while back uh, into the north of Commercial Road, where there was over 60 local traders, most of whom are makers. So they were selling things that they've actually made. Sorry, Portsmouth yep. City Council for those on the chat. Um, so, um, so the items that they've made, they're creating in you know in their bedrooms or their garages or their spare rooms, and they're taking them out and selling them. And they're building an audience and a market, and uh, they're doing that partly online uh, for awareness, but they also want to uh, be able to sell physically, and their customers want to come and talk to them because you know they develop a relationship, and those relationships with shop with shopkeepers uh, and retailers are what we lost in this country. You know, people joke about things like "Are you being served?" Quite rightly, great comedy series in my view. Floor walkers. No, Captain Peacock was a floor walker. The job of floor walkers was to go around the store and interrupt, interact with regular customers and make them feel welcome. So they recognized Mrs. Smith and Mr. Jones as they came through the door. And that's why they came back. And they went to shop assistants at the counters in department stores who they recognized and they trusted to give them the right advice. So they go, all of that went. You know, all of the quality layers went and you ended up with just basically lots of really uh, simple shops, identical across the whole country, doing exactly the same thing. Independence back in that environment again, doing what they do best, my, like my great grandparents did with the shop they had in Edinburgh Road where they lived upstairs. They spent their money in their friend shops in the surrounding area. Their friends spent money in theirs. They had a, a regular clientele and a, a very loyal one. We need to go back to that. Not everybody wants to buy something on the internet. As a middle-aged bloke, buying clothes online is a flipping nightmare. Uh, you, it's, it's, nobody's clothes sizes, and Simon's nodding, nobody's clothes sizes are the same. You buy a large in one place, and it's an extra large from somewhere else. I uh, bought a shirt the other week that I could put to two poles in and sleep in for a week. So... You know, those issues are not going to go away for a very long time. But the high street needs to be independent. It needs to be focused around quality and that personal connection. And then the bits of it that are no longer needed because there is spare capacity need to pivot over to cultural use, leisure uses 
and and a really good quality and independent hospitality sector not you know endless chains where you can go to the same high street anywhere in the country and eat the same sandwich and drink the same drink in the same way that retail uh, chains have failed that will eventually start to happen as well with some of the weaker hospitality brands in you know we we're seeing a few of them going over the last couple of years so i do think high street's got a future to answer the question about what could the government have done i answered it earlier on actually they could have cut that because yep. that's a direct impact that would have put money back in people's pockets and enabled them to to have what little controllable spend they've actually got left in the middle of all this to spend a bit more money that would have been really really helpful I don't think that the uh, support for businesses is, will actually have done very much at all because the costs of uh, their overheads have gone up so much. I, I mean, I've seen uh, the Wedgwood rooms. Jeff Priestley was quoted in the paper saying his electricity bills tripled. Yep. Now, I'm telling you that the vast majority of hospitality outlets uh, and entertainment venues will be running on roundabout maximum 10% net profit. So you've wiped out their profit just to turn on the lights every day. So, you know, allowing them a bit of a business rates uh, break, especially when a lot of the smaller businesses are already rates exempt, is not going to do very much at all. So I think small business should be absolutely screaming at the government right now to say, cut VAT. It's the only thing that's going to directly help us because if we it enables us to, one, hold our prices, and, and that means potentially use that little bit of extra money that we've got coming in to cover our electricity bills, but it does mean we don't have to put prices up, which is only going to affect our business more seriously. But there's nobody who understands business in this government. You know, we were talking about Quasi Kwarteng earlier on. The guy had a degree in economic history, so he knows what went wrong, but he ain't got the faintest idea what to do in future to put it right. Um, you know, people like Grant Shapps. I mean, who are these people? This is a third-rate government populated with third-rate ministers. And to be frank, I don't see much better on the Labour benches either. It's, we seem to be in the same position that America's in, where there's no, where's the talent? You know, the six, the country, and the best we can do is the 650 people currently sat in the House of Commons. It's a national embarrassment. You know, I say that for some of my own lot as well. There's, where's the inspiration? Where's the the forward thinking? There's no imagination left anymore. So this country's just decided to just have a slumber. Um, it really frustrates me because I'm so passionate about what this country could be and what it could achieve. But all the people here who could achieve it don't get help by their governments. Um, and I just don't see it changing. Sorry. Okay, that was um, definitely passionate and forthright as as um, as we're used to. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Um, was there anything quickly you wanted to add there, Mark? Before I um, before I ra uh, round up with a closing question, a quick. Well, I mean, I, I managed to move us on to retail versus uh, online, but the only other thing is to to think about the, the, the how difficult it is to get cheap imports and uh, how expensive it is and how much red tape there is now to export for businesses and how they're having to move abroad. So um, I, I didn't want us to, to finish without mentioning the elephant in the room and we need to rejoin the single market and the customs union. Completely agree. I don't know if you saw it, Mark, but there was a thing uh, that was doing around on social media where Nigel Farage was quoted as trumpeting the Swiss model when he wanted to leave the EU. And now that there's a prospect that we might follow that model, according to uh, multiple leaks from the government, the ERG are jumping up and down like lunatics as usual. And, saying, and Farage is saying that it's a disgrace and the Conservative Party needs to be wiped out for suggesting such a thing. And, and um, David Davis and Liam Fox yeah. and um, Daniel Hannan and Boris Johnson. And they all said the single market and the customs unions would be mad to leave it. Uh, yeah. And, and then it evolved, and and I think that uh, that the harder um, Brexiteers, UKIP took control, didn't they? Yeah. Okay. I'll, um, if I can now ask a, a closed question to you, uh, to you both. So I want an answer that's either better or worse. So, Steve, after the autumn statement, are we better or worse off? I can't answer that. And I'm always on it. I can't answer it because at the moment, from a council perspective, I don't know yet because we've got to do all the pluses and minuses and work out. I suspect we're worse off. If the question's about as a country uh, and as people living in that country, we were worse off before it and uh, we're marginally less worse off than we were after Quasi Quarting and Liz Trust did their thing. 
Um, but that's nothing to shout about. Yeah, that's not really a winning electoral slogan, is it? Less worse off than we were last week. <laughs> Mark, worse or better off? Uh, the only U-turn that I want the government to do, and, and they're so good at them, um, is is to stop us just dipping and uh, and and... And, and just the, the total ruination of Britain. Um, mm. And for me, this is, we're still going the wrong direction, but it has slowed that down. It has slowed that awful descent down. It's a slower motion car crash than it was. So thank you to both our guests for the positive and in beginning outlook. And uh, I, I, I guess we, we expected, uh, we, we expected nothing less, but thank you. There was some, there was some great balance in there. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody expected a, a, a ringing endorsement of, uh, of Mr. Hunt's work. So you've been listening to the Pompey Politics podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our guests have been... Councillor Steve Pip from Portsmouth City Council. And Mark Coates, trying to be a councillor over on Hailing. Okay. Um, and I've been Simon Sansbury. Thanks very much for listening and watching uh, today's show. Join us next week, 6.27. Uh, please don't forget to like, follow, subscribe on YouTube, on Facebook, um, and give us some reviews on wherever you uh, listen to us as a podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>